Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Esports Boom, your weekly esports business podcast. My name is Maurice Eisenman. I'm joined by another exciting guest. This week, I'm joined by Ryan Dow, the Director of Partnerships at FlyQuest. So for those of you who have been listening for a while, the past couple of weeks, we've had some very interesting guest hosts. Uh, we've had journalists. We've had people in the sponsorship space when it comes to platforms like Twitch. But this is the first time in the history of the podcast that we're having someone from a team side. And, and boy, are we, are we excited to have, uh, have Ryan on. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, very, very excited to have you on. Um, it's really cool. And, and, and as usual, we'll start by you know, going through the news. We'll, we'll kind of touch on some interesting points. And then afterwards, uh, we'll get into kind of the meat of your esports story. And most importantly, um, what you guys, the incredible kind of work you guys have been doing with FlyQuest over the past few years. Um, so let's move right into the first story. So I'll go through, through the stories, kind of touch on some facts, and then I'll, I'll give you the mic and we'll take it from there. So number one, I think Rainbow Six Siege really surprised all of us with high viewership numbers. So um, number one, their peak was at about 200,000 uh, for their invitational. Uh, their average viewership was at about 150,000. Um, one big caveat that we do need to mention is that everything of that was based on in-game awards. So actually really interesting was if you watched, if you watched for a little bit, you got a specific level of reward and in every hour that you kept on watching, um, your reward kind of increased. So uh, Ryan, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely interesting considering where Rainbow Six is kind of in, the, in what we consider the tiers of, of esports. Yeah. Um, I think taking the approach of rewarding viewership with with in-game drops whether that be crates or loot or whatever the system is for the mm -hmm. game is very intelligent for an esports platform yes. to kind of gain viewership the real question there is kind of what is the sustainability of it right so if you start to ease those off does the viewership maintain do you start to see a significant decrease you know really what is the motivation behind the fans to continue to watch afterwards i know paladins has introduced something like this mm -hmm. um you know through their facebook platform that they're doing yes. um their viewership hasn't been too great um but every time they have those rewards uh it seems to get a spike i know rocket league does this as well right yes. with with rewarding their viewers um uh it, it's definitely a smart tactic uh, i think with there's a little bit more loyalty in a game like like um, Rocket League versus something like Rainbow Six at the moment. Yes. Um, and I would love to see, you know, if they continue to do this, if they start easing off on the reward side of things, if that viewership kind of maintains that height. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the, the um, reward system is a great way to introduce the casual audience or like the more hardcore, but the non-esports audience to the esports uh, e space. But I think... If this becomes the norm of kind of rewards, I think publishers will be hesitant because you can't do this for every small tournament. You can only do this for your big world championship. Right. Otherwise, you're losing a lot of money. But um, it's interesting. I think um, the key for this is, you know, how are they going to convert these fans? And so far, I think a lot of the publishers, specifically the smaller publishers, they kind of they do this type of stuff just to get, you know, those high initial viewership numbers. And then they kind of, you know, hope that that some of that will convert. What I would like to see a publisher do is really focus in their actual stream 
on perhaps educating yep. the fan. No, I've, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I think if you take the approach that Blizzard has with Overwatch and in, in, in the mentality that they uh, take with their audience, they're not trying to convert fans into Overwatch fans mm -hmm. or Overwatch players. What they're trying to do is take their 30 million unique user base yeah. and convert them into esports fans, yes. which I think is a very smart thing to do. And I think incorporating kind of that drop system um, is a good way to do that. Like you said, introduce them to maybe something that they weren't really exposed to previously. Yeah. And this is, a, I think it shows a radical shift in the eyes of the publisher because for years, the reason why esports, you know, why publishers put in all this money into esports was so that they could get more in-game purchases. It was a marketing tool Exactly. For so this is really a, a shift in, in kind of the way... I mean, obviously, if you get esports fans, they will eventually become higher-paying customers just because they want to stay competitive, yep. or to, you know. But I think this is a, a, a kind of radical shift that we're seeing, specifically with smaller publishers, although, as you mentioned, with Overwatch, we're kind of seeing it there as well. So it'll be, it'll be really exciting. I think the... The moment the publishers realize that it's in their best interest to um, have a strong esports scene that's self-sustainable, um, we'll, we're going to see some very cool stuff from the publishers. I agree. This, the second that some of the publishers start viewing esports as a secondary revenue stream for them, mm -hmm. opposed to just simply a marketing tool, is where I really think we'll see advancements in you know kind of production value and. Um, you know how seriously different publishers take take it. I think you know we talk about Blizzard a lot because I think Overwatch was one of the first examples of um, a game that was made and immediately considered and, and talked about being an esport. Yeah. Right? Um, Blizzard from the onset said we're going to make this an esport, and that's probably one of the few examples where a, a publisher kind of takes that hard stance, and it's, mm -hmm. and it's been somewhat successful. I use air quotes around that because it's been one stage of, yes. of, of a full year. So we'll see if that maintains itself. But I think that's a brilliant way to kind of approach the esports scene and uh, kind of uh, attract viewers and maintain viewership. Just a general question, kind of more of a, like a philosophical question. So I say, do you think that the game specifically made for esports, do you think that's a trend that's a good thing to do? Or do you think kind of as we saw, we've seen in the past, create a competitive game if there happens to be a a need for esports, build a scene around it. Which, what, what do you think will be kind of the trend of the future? I, I think it's it's hit or miss. Um, in a sense that esports is one of those areas where, where new video games come up all the time. Like PUBG is a perfect example of, of something that exploded, and now yeah. people are talking about it as an esport. Heck, FlyQuest has a PUBG team. Yes. Um, and that's more of like, do we see growth in the space? And we do. What's really interesting uh, is if you take that hardline approach of making a game in eSport, how do you make it um, so that you're attracting a wider audience than maybe just that subsect? Mm -hmm. um, whereas a game like League of Legends, which wasn't necessarily made to be an eSport, but had a true nature of a, a competitive um, play style, uh, just naturally lended itself to it. Um, I think what Riot's done in kind of perfecting the game, um, and whether you call it a perfect game or not, is, is up to opinion, yeah. um, but perfecting kind of that competitive side of the game that lends itself to a very high skill ceiling uh, is, is something that can't be overlooked. Um, I think you'll definitely see a few games pop up that try to be esports-specific games. I think the majority of them will fail. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, I think there will be a couple winners in there. Some yeah. that, that, that have that longevity that uh, really kind of resonate with, with the fan base. Um, 
and and really uh, kind of take off and succeed. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to our next story. So this story originally was reported last week, um, I think on Wednesday. But similar to this today, we're recording on a Tuesday. So we're mainly focusing on the stories that have been from Tuesday to last Tuesday. So um, this story was just too big to igno- not to ignore. So Tencent uh, mobile PUBG clone is the most downloaded app in the world. So PUBG, it's translated exhilarating battlefield, is a free mobile <laughs> version of PUBG. Um, app Annie, which is kind of a tracking website, uh, states that it's the most downloaded game in the world since its release February 9th. So that's still actually, so that's like two weeks um, I've heard ridiculous numbers of like pre-registered in the 50s of millions or something like that. So that there's a really, really huge fan base. Really interesting kind of to hear your thoughts specifically because as you just mentioned, you know, FlyQuest is in PUBG. So, yep. so first of all, what does this, what are your thoughts and, and kind of what do you think is the broader thoughts of like the, how can this, well, how does this fit into the general PUBG kind of atmosphere? Uh, I think you have to look at it separately. I think just just as you have to look at what Tencent did with Arena of Valor relatively separately from League of Legends, even though it is it is in its nature the same thing, um, you kind of have to look at a mobile games. I'm not going to call it an esport yet because it's not really proven to be a, a true esport foundation there. But mobile games versus your your typical you know keyboard and mice games, uh, you just got to look at them separately. I think it's it's. Ten cents a monster. I think they're yeah. unbelievably smart on their side. They know where their bread and butter is on the tech side of things, um, and and they know where their target market is going and or already living. And by that I mean like we know that the Chinese market is is over indexes on the use of mobile. Um, and one, you can't ignore just the population size that they have there. So you know, give them what they're already demanding um, from from mice and keyboard, and let them take that mobile with them. So they're constantly you know feeding into this ecosystem of you know ten cents uh, gaming platform. So um, even though this is not directly a story, because because I, I I very much agree with you, but like, how has it been? Um, working in PUBG, you know, having a, fielding a team in there, you know, what is what what has been your experiences with that? Yeah, I think PUBG, obviously, with the explosive growth they had just as a game uh, last year, I think BRs in general, the battle royale game mode, is just is fascinating. Um, you know, what we saw with H1Z1 last year, you can attribute that to a lot to, you know, the streamers that were playing it at the time, but just the popularity you couldn't deny. Um, it was really a first mover in the space. And then you had PUBG come along and really kind of perfect. Um, and I'm not going to call but no means is PUBG a perfect game. But yeah. in a sense, that it, it lent itself more towards realism, which you see FPS players gravitate towards. That's why Counter-Strike is still as big as it is and it's been around since... 2000, 2001. Having worked in it from an esports perspective, it definitely needs work. Um, I think the spectator client definitely needs a lot of work just to make the viewing experience a lot better for fans that are interested in it. Right now, um, as our GM will tell you, it's basically watching a mini-map most of the game and then just watching the kill feed otherwise until you get to the final 10 players. Um, I think until that changes... Uh, I think it's going to struggle a little bit from viewership numbers. I think the potential is definitely there. I would just love to see, again, like we've talked about, like Bluehole has the foundation now, with or PUBG Corp has the foundation now, where you know they have the view, they have the the in built in game audience. Now, how do we convert them to esports users um, if that's where they see the game going? Yeah. Um, 
without the support of PUBG Corp, I don't know how long PUBG lasts from an esports perspective. Um, but as soon as PUBG Corp starts paying a little bit of attention to it, I think it can it definitely succeed. It's really tough for them as a publisher because it's a it's a small group. You know, they were just less than a hundred employees before. They had a few games they were working on Blue Hole, and like all of a sudden, this one game becomes this massive success, and you need a team of like a, a few hundred. Yep. So. I know in Korea they've been hiring like crazy. They're now opening up an, an office in California. So they, I, I think, I think esports is a priority. But at the end of the day, for them, and I can't blame them, like getting your servers in order. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit more important for them. So correct. I, I think give it a few months, and we'll see them have a more time on their hands to focus on esports. And I think we'll see some some good innovations on that regard. Absolutely, and that's why we got into the space. I think we were. I don't want to misspeak. We were we were like very early adopters to, yeah. to PUBG because we saw a growth potential in it, right? Right now, it's not it's not a revenue generator for us. It's it's more of a you know we we have we believe in the game and we believe in the space, um, and we, we kind of see good growth potential there. Um, so it was something that was you know low cost, potentially high reward for well, us. It's really good from a, from a team perspective to see teams, um, and it's kudos to you guys to see teams willing to take a risk. To kind of say like we do believe this can eventually pay off, so let's support this scene as it is now, um, so that uh, you know when the time comes and 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 this is a successful game, hopefully um, we don't have to play catch up, which is beneficial for you guys. But at the same time, especially if the scene as as immature as PUBG can really really you know benefit from kind of more uh, established teams like FlyQuest. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why you see, you know, the Optics, the TSMs, the TLs, the Phase. C9, yeah. Phase, you know, Team Vitality. I think most major orgs right now have have a team in, in PUBG. And it's more, I think, for everyone. I don't think any single team is turning a profit on their, their PUBG team. Um, but for them, it's it's a growth potential. It is building brand identity within the PUBG esports sphere, um, you know, with your own already existing esports brand. Yeah, and then PUBG kind of proves how powerful it is if you can tell stories in gaming, because every single PUBG game is a story. I mean, we we played a, a few a week ago, and it's like I I I suck, and, and 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 it's just the fact that like you have someone you know you in this case who knows how to how to carry a team, so it's like you're in a battlefield, and there's just one person who's able who knows his stuff, and it's a story you can tell. Whereas another game. A different, you know, uh, group of people might be very good. All, all of them. So it's a different story you tell. So that's why people like Doctor Disrespect are able to garner all this viewership because every single game is is, is interesting to watch. Absolutely, and I think the battle royale genre lends itself to that, right? In the sense that we, you know, you can parachute in at literally any location on the map. You, if you wanted, you could play a hundred games and land it in a hundred different places. And every game, from the moment you land to the moment you, hopefully, get yourself a chicken dinner, yeah. uh, it will be completely different. Which is why I think a lot of people like it. There's there's a lot of playability with with a game genre like that. Yeah, uh, and it also you know it also like kind of challenges the production team because how can you tell that story on an esports level? I mean, it's cool. It's, it's interesting to to tell that that story if you're one person, if you're a doctor disrespect or uh, and you're just, or Shroud, or you're just one streamer who, you know, is, you're following that person as opposed to a hundred different competitors playing. Absolutely. I think PUBG, as much as, as like the ESLs of the world want to make it a, a very uh, 
compelling live event. I honestly think PUBG would would suit itself better if it was live to tape. That's really interesting. Because then you can have the time to edit you know, exactly the place you want to show, the big moments that happen throughout the game. Um, you could have multiple obser- observers recording multiple different perspectives and not have to worry about flipping between one and the other and missing, you know, uh, you know, the perspective. Like I would love if you could, like, let's say Dr. Disrespect and Shroud were in an invitational together and they end up facing off with each other. You know, if that was live, it would be very difficult to see both person's perspectives. But if that was live to tape, you can get a much more compelling storyline by showing both both of their perspectives leading up to that big p- pinnacle moment. That, that's really interesting. I've heard some stuff like if teams know from the beginning where they need to drop and like they that might help or stuff like that. Uh, I've heard some interesting. I, I think it's we're we're kind of working our way as we're going. But this is yeah, that's really really an interesting point of view. So let's go to to our next story. So this actually. I wasn't planning on including this, but it, it, uh, the press release uh, got released like two hours ago. Um, so Hacks.gg, which is a new esports performance wear line, uh, officially launched. So they are backed by uh, ESL founder Jens Hilgers and John Wayne German, who is an apparel expert. Um, and they are already now the official apparel supplier of um, ESL One, Intel Extreme Masters, and DreamHack Lens. Not surprising, knowing that Jens is behind this, but their focus really is to um, to focus on casual streetwear, high quality performance. So kind of, um, and and I'll go more into into kind of my theory on this, but really focusing on the lifestyle as opposed to just copying traditional sports. So so what do you think, Ryan? I 100% agree with that approach. I think I think. You see brands like the Nikes and the Under Armour is a little hesitant to get into the space um, simply because it's not a performance space. Like, yes, the guys are performing at a very high level mentally and in some capacity, you know, their dexterity is super important. But from a physical aspect, it's not the the same kind of brand ideals that the Nikes and the Reeboks of the world hold. Um, I think taking a more lifestyle approach uh, makes a lot of sense. I think you, you can see that in, in the way we approached our merchandise at FlyQuest mm-hmm. this year. Uh, we took a very lifestyle uh, mentality in, in kind of our designs and our and the creation of our designs to make them more appealing and look like items that you would wear on a daily basis. Exactly. Um, and I think that is an extremely smart way to approach the esports space. Yeah, I think too often, um, and I think a large part of this is just the fact that a lot of esports teams are bare bones, so they don't have resources spent on this, but... In the past, we've seen a lot of esports teams just, you know, they 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 work with a meta threads or they work with a, a simple ma- manufacturer that works in traditional sports and they just get a logo plastered on a traditional sport jersey, which is fine. Uh, the problem is you have to be a hardcore fan to be willing to buy that jersey. Whereas, um, and I'm not too familiar with FlyQuest merch, but to give another example, E United, uh, which is a Call of Duty team, worked with a streetwear designer to create their 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 branding and um i'm not a call of duty fan i mean i I just don't want i just don't have too many hours in a week but like i was so close to buying that jersey just because it looked really good and it looked like something i wanted to wear so let alone and i will check out flyquest merch line but let alone if it's a brand that i have more familiarity with like flyquest i think that decision will be a lot less i think that's a great way for for esports to distinguish themselves because 
I think the um, for a casual fan, especially a younger casual fan that isn't familiar with esports, if you walk into a stadium or you watch a broadcast and there are like five teams and all of them are wearing incredibly incredibly designed like kind of streetwear lifestyle yep. brand, it's a completely different picture. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the days of the logo slap are are kind of numbered, um, and that's both from a traditional branding perspective, also a partner perspective. I think like everyone wants to feel like whatever was made was made personally for them, like it was custom made for them. I think that's just the mentality of our generation, the generation that's coming up behind us. Um, so like when we we brought in a designer. Um, to help us design like 20 to 30 different iterations of our merch, whether that was like oh, a design for a long sleeve shirt versus a baseball tee versus a hoodie versus a crew neck versus a hat versus, you know, we just wanted to have an array of products that just felt like, you know, I could see that walking on the street and be like, dope, I want that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the mentality. Of, uh, some teams are getting there. Some teams are taking more approaches that way. Um, but I think it, it, this alignment on, on, uh, you know, ESL and E-League side is, is just brilliant. You mentioned partners, right? How would you, is it challenging with this type of merch to uh, integrate the, the partners or, or, or is it actually as simple as, as regular merch? So, you know, from our merch store perspective, we've kind of kept ours uh, kind of clean in the sense that we don't actually include on our personal merch, Mm -hmm. any of our, our, our partners. Um, and that's just a conscious decision on our side so that we don't feel like we don't want our fans to feel like walking billboards. Um, that said, like there is a lot of value in, um, you know, Jersey branding. Um, and what we did was, you know, we actually took the approach of kind of using a colored logo. Um, you can see that as an example in our Snickers logo uh, and it pops like it looks really good. And the cleanness of the five hour energy logo on the, sh- the shoulder looked really good. Um, but we want to we want to limit that to the performance wear. And, and by that, I mean, like our jerseys. Um, we want to keep our apparel clean so that it's, it's, it's evergreen, right? We don't want a fan, like, God forbid, one of our partners does not renew with us for next year. We don't want a fan to go, oh, no, now I got to replace my jersey because mm-hmm. that partner is no longer part of the team. That's, uh, that's a really honest answer. It's a refreshing approach. So moving on to our next story, let's get into more um, stick and ball esports. So this really, this is a surprising story. I've only seen one source kind of pick it up. Uh, so the opening weekend for the FFA's E-League uh, had a higher viewership number in the average A-League game. So just for people who don't know what the FFA E-League and what the A-League game is. So the A-League is the uh, Australian uh, Soccer League. So the MLS of Australia, so to say. The FFA E-League is their uh, kind of FIFA iteration of that league. So most teams have bought in, have a player representing them. So... The E-League's opening night attracted 138,000 viewers on streaming network Twitch, uh, as well as Fox Sports Australian website, with figures uh, from that still to be confirmed. So they have 138,000 just from Twitch. Um, The shock meant that it had a broadcast reach well above the average A-League audience on Fox Sports Network this season, uh, which has dropped to about 119,000 according to the FFA. So I do have a lot of kind of opinions on this article and on this statement I just said, but I'll give you the mic first. Yeah, uh, I think I, what this is indicative of is where the audience is. Mm-hmm. It's it's I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that there's less and in, less interest in the A League from 
um, you know, Australian viewers. I just think that Australian viewers, the younger ones, that is, are not watching traditional television platforms. They're on your digital platforms. Um, I think it's it's a good case study for the A-League to look at and go, okay, let us start exploring some more digitally focused streaming um, for our actual games to hit the audience that is obviously interested. The reason that FIFA is so popular is because people feel like they're playing as like their favorite team. Yes. Right? Um, So if they're already watching online their favorite esports player or FIFA esports player play as their favorite Australian team, what's to say that they wouldn't actually watch their favorite Australian team play? Yeah, I, I agree somewhat. I think you, you, I agree with your first kind of statement. I think an important uh, differentiator is that the Fox Sports is for the A-League is paid. You need to pay a subscription. So that's a barrier. It's regional, meaning if you live in, in England, you don't really have access mm-hmm. to the A-League. Uh, Twitch, however, is free and it's international. So yep. if you like FIFA, uh, you can the FIFA esports. You don't you and you live in Brazil. You can watch the the A League. There's no barrier to entry. So I think that's obviously uh, gives a lot more potential reach to the uh, to the E League. That being said, I do think that FIFA. What makes FIFA unique as opposed to most other traditional stick and ball game titles is the fact that. Um, it's a game, specifically in some countries, that um, it's just a fun game to play. You don't need to know the players. Correct. Uh, so what I do think is that this provides an opportunity for the um, E-Leagues of the world, the A-Leagues of the world, to kind of get that audience and, and introduce them. One thing that I would like to see is five weeks from now, six weeks from now. I wouldn't be surprised if that viewership number goes all the way down. Correct. Um, because... The opening week, I think Twitch will will give them kind of the front page access. Yep. I don't think that week five will give them that access. I uh, I think fans might might hop on Twitch to see what's all what all this is about, and then end up you know you know just not not everyone's going to end up watching for for week two, and not everyone of week two is going to go to week three. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that number goes down. I mean, to be honest, that number drops by half by week five, I would still think this is a success uh, because we're talking about the Australian league. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think you need to look at it, and I hate to keep using Blizzard and Overwatch League as an example, but look at the opening day for stage one of the Overwatch League. Mm -hmm. It was at 430,000 peak concurrent viewers. By the end of it, um, even for playoffs, we were in the hundreds to to low 200,000 concurrent viewers. I would love to see what the opening numbers are for stage two of the Overwatch League. Yes. If they hit the same 400,000 mark, then it's just a case study to tell people that, you know, people care about the big moments, the opening days and the playoffs. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, like you said, if the E-League's numbers for the FFA drop over the course of the weeks. And if they, what would be a great indicator is if they peak again at the playoffs. Yeah, and one thing that is this does show to me is that is the death of the eventual death of the the traditional TV? Yes. That that's I mean I, I love seeing this, uh, but like just the fact that that you you hear is a case study where you see a product which costs a lot less. I mean the E League probably costs a fraction of what a, a regular A League game costs, 
um, and it gets a higher viewership, number one, because it's online, but also because there are no barriers. You can just watch it whenever you want. So, so I love seeing this. Correct. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree. I think what it starts to blur, however, is, you know, I'm thinking about it because my mindset's always on a partnership or a sponsorship mm-hmm. perspective. As you start to blur the line of like, yeah, I knew the FFA was always the Australian league, but of those 138,000 viewers, how many of them were from Australia? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a number that, that is, and that's a question that's asked across all esports right now um, that no one really has a, a definite answer for. Uh, I think it's just a, slowly changing the mindset of partners that any partnership you do in esports is automatically global. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks from a partnership because I, I, I've worked with, with a few teams, but I used to work with a traditional uh, sports team, a soccer team actually, and we're, we're looking through their, their esports work. And we went to their 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 sponsor, which was a really loyal sponsor. And we're like, hey, we're doing this esports stuff. You know, do you want us to help us? And they're like, great. So, um, so how many of you of how how much of that audience is in your country or is in your city? And we're like, uh, probably the vast majority are going to be from all around the world. Isn't that amazing? And they're like, well, a lot of these companies, you know, they have regional headquarters. Yep. So the regional sponsor doesn't want to you know, invest in an international kind of marketing ploy because that's that that's not what they're here for. Absolutely. And I can give you a perfect example. So prior to my time at, at FlyQuest, I was working on Bud Light yeah. with uh, at, at their activation agency for all their U.S. brands uh, activating within the North American sports hemisphere. And, and within that fell esports. Uh, and a lot of questions that we got asked was, hey, Bud Light is only sold in Canada, the United States and Mexico. How do we ensure that whatever target audience we're hitting is within those three countries when we're activating within the esports sphere? And it was very, very difficult for us to produce numbers that proved that the majority of their audience and majority of their activations were going to hit a, a purely U.S. audience. I think that that will change as you see the Nielsen's get involved um, in this world as the RepuComs get involved in this world, I think that will change. Um, but for right now, it's very difficult to prove. And I also think brands will eventually shift. I think the bigger brands will eventually be like, okay, um, we don't need local, um, we don't need to focus on local, we focus on international, uh, with esports at least. Kind of how they look at soccer often, uh, when they do like a Champions League mm-hmm. sponsorship. They, they don't care about one specific country, they want the whole of Europe or better to see the whole of, of, of the world. So going to our last story before we move into kind of your story and FlyQuest. So the IOC in a recent interview announced that they have further uh, plans to back esports. So this was an interview done with the executive director, Yanis Xarakos, um, of the Olympic Channel. So the Olympic Channel will look into engaging with its young audience through esports uh, straight after the Pyeongchang Olympics. After we saw, we saw Intel. Uh, having a great uh, activation there. Um, and uh, they do have some issues. These issues all are, uh, according to them, I have to say, a male demographic and elements that encourage a sedentary lifestyle. I don't think they've ever watched curling. <laughs> but, uh, and this is according to, uh, to Giannis. So um, I, I'm probably going to go on a, on a little rant, but I'll give, you the, I'll give you the mic first. Are you sure so, you don't want to rant first? Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first. So, so I just want to say, like, this is, uh, first of all, I'm very excited whenever I see traditional sports organizations, especially organizations as big and as 
as powerful as the IOC being interested in esports. Because at the end of the day, it does justify us. That being said, I am of the opinion that esports doesn't need the Olympics. It's more the other way around. Uh, the Olympic Channel was really happy that when they had esports broadcast, their audience was a lot younger. Absolutely uh, agree. So that's really, really good. That being said, these statements um, kind of reek of ignorance, um, issues of male demographic. I mean, there are a lot of traditional sports that are heavily skewed towards a male demographic. Um, and also, I think a better way to phrase this is saying that the strides esports have made, we have a long way to go. But esports now, as um, our listeners uh, knew of, of, of the podcast we had with Nathan last week, I mean, the change, the, the acceptance of 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 women into esports has been really, really good over the past few years. But the second uh, statement is what I'm really hesitant about. So elements that encourage a sedentary lifestyle. So um, this is really a kind of a gamer in the basement kind of mentality. Um, I think I can speak for FlyQuest as well, but most tier one and even tier one teams like FlyQuest, but even tier two teams, they invest heavily in physical activity. If you look nowadays, if you look 10 years ago at esports players, you can say, okay, clearly these people don't, when you look at them physically, they might not look the fittest. But if you're looking at, the, at a regular NALCF broadcast, you see slim, you see, you see, you know, you see regular fault that, 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 that you can clearly see that go into the gym, you know, frequently. And this just this statement is reek of ignorance. So, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, uh, I think you know. One, he's he's trying to protect with statements like this. He's trying to protect the Olympic brand that is a wholesome mm-hmm. family brand. But you know, I think the other issue that you didn't bring up was the fact that he also considers most esports as a you know having violent tendencies. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I, I understand that point from from his side of thing, but the fact that it, like he's harping on male demographics um, and the fact that it, it promotes elements of sedentary lifestyle are, are just like you said a little bit ignorant. Uh, it's it, I can speak for us at FlyQuest is like we have a nutritionist, we have a personal chef mm-hmm. for our, our players, um, we pay for our players gym memberships, like we make sure that they are, are getting the physical activity that they need. Um, yes, the the games that are being played typically take uh, take place while seated. Um, and if you're looking at the old traditional understanding of the Olympics where it was like Greek, Greek mm-hmm. versus Athens and it was, you know, the discus and the decathlon, like, yes, absolutely. However, I agree with your statement in the sense that, like, this is the Olympics saying that they need a younger audience. Um, and as long as they are looking at this as something that they are serious about that Olympics is a a competition that promotes wellness between nations is truly a global presence. Then I'm a completely fine with, fine with them, including it. Um, and kind of trying to tap into the esports audience where I have a problem is if they start looking at it as, uh, the, uh, by pulling esports into, uh, the Olympic channel that they're going to convert esports fans into olympic fans yeah, that's, and that's where i have a little bit of an issue with everyone trying to capitalize on esports is looking at it saying oh look 70 percent of the fans are between the ages of 18 and 34 well i want those fans to be fans of my stuff uh is kind of is even more ignorant than some of his previous statements yeah so i think kind of what you mentioned with the conversion it's much easier to make that like one two step when you're looking at the NBA 2K League, when you're looking at Madden, or when you're looking at FIFA, because 
you can say these are already existing fans of the, the virtual version of the game. Yeah, yeah, obviously, I think the fact that, that their focus is the Olympic channel and not Twitch kind of says it. Uh, I, I would love to see the Olympic channel on Twitch. I think that's, that's a much better way of trying to convert or trying to get the audience to get eyeballs on the Olympic channel. I think that's a much better way, but yeah. I agree. I think the one thing that the Olympics could do very right and, and, and do right by esports is if they take that nationality side of, mm-hmm. of the competitive nature yes. that esports already has. Like you can just point to what BlizzCon had with the Overwatch World Cup and the viewership that that uh, obtained is just an example of how fans are, are more than willing especially in an ecosystem where it doesn't really promote regionalism outside of Overwatch League, uh, to, to follow their region and, and support the players that are representing their nation. Uh, I think that is a clear win for the Olympics uh, and the Olympic Channel, if that's the approach they take. But Korea will get all the medals. We will not discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do, I, I, I do agree. And, and I was pretty hesitant on that in the beginning, but at, at the end, I have an, an NYXL jersey in my... In, in, yeah, I bought one. So yeah, that that kind of proves your point. All right, Brian. So now that we've gone through the news and we've uh, you know we've given our hot takes, um, let's you know let's go through your story and then let's go into FlyQuest's story. So how about you tell us you know how you stumbled into esports and uh, what brought you to eventually be part of the FlyQuest team? Absolutely. Um, so I got my start right out of college at IMG. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually interned with them, uh, IMG now WME IMG now Endeavor. Endeavor. Um, they've gone through a couple acquisitions and name changes since I've been there. Um, but I was there for seven years. I spent uh, a year in the fashion department there, believe it or not. Um, that was my first job out of college, worked Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week in New York, hung out with a couple of models. It was fun. Could be worse. It could be worse. <laughs> Life didn't suck. Um, from there, I actually, you know, obviously fashion wasn't my passion, didn't mean for that to rhyme, but fashion wasn't my passion. Uh, sports was my passion. Um, so I transitioned over to our uh, sports talent management group. Um, within that, I helped three separate agents represent uh, sports broadcasting talent as well as some celebrity talent. Um, so that's where I kind of really got a taste of what talent management was like. I got to work with a couple of, uh, of sponsors there uh, and partners that actually sponsored some of our individual talent, um, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, you know, Powerade, to name a couple. Um, from there, I after the acquisition by WME, I realized that like talent agency life wasn't exactly what I really wanted to do. So I really wanted to go into more of a marketing slash strategy role. Um, so I transitioned into our strategic consulting division right after we won the Anheuser-Busch account. So Anheuser-Busch, for those who don't know, um, has a very, very vast portfolio of brands. Uh, that includes Bud Light, Budweiser, Stella Artois, Shock Top, um, Michelob Ultra, to name a few. So while I was there, I think I was like the third hire on that team. I you know, helped set up that group um, for the next couple of years that I worked with them. But one of the things that Bud Light mentioned, and Bud Light specifically mentioned that they were interested in was esports. And this was in September of 2015, and I started in August of 2015. Um, for us, it was you know 
it was in our pitch deck to them on like why they should join us. This was right after we had acquired GM um, with Tobias Sherman and Brett Lautenbach, who's now the, the president of NRG. Um, we kind of used that in our deck to kind of uh, appeal to this this Bud Light brand that was kind of on the downswing due to the rise in craft beer. Uh, and they saw it as an opportunity to take advantage of a, a younger audience, just like everyone else does. So what we did, uh, or what our team did was said, who's interested in esports? Who knows anything about esports? Bud Light's interested. Uh, no one raised their hand, so I didn't. Uh, and I, at that time, I had really didn't know about esports. And I really just took the opportunity to dive headfirst in. Um, so I actually helped them create, from a strategy perspective, the Bud Light esports program, which consisted of the Bud Light All-Stars, uh, their on-site activations at the DreamHack events, and at TwitchCon. So, um, you know, I worked with them from September through March of 2016 to build the strategy around the Bud Light Esports uh, and the Bud Light All-Stars program. And then we launched it in May of 2016. And then I worked with them 2016, 2017. Uh, and then it was in June of 2017 that I, I jumped ship and, and joined the ranks at FlyQuest. So, um... I mean, obviously, this might probably an easy question for you to answer, but what was it about FlyQuest that, especially back then, FlyQuest was really young. So what was it that made you decide, okay, I have a cushy agency job. I'm going to take it. I'm going to go into the world, the wild west of like the teams of in esports. Absolutely. Yeah, I was uh, I was hire number four, technically, at, at FlyQuest. Uh, what I really loved about FlyQuest in particular um, was wasn't necessarily, you know, where they were at at the time, but it was more of their vision. Um, Ryan Edens, our CEO, uh, has an incredible vision for what he sees the esports space becoming, uh, the support that people like Wes Edens have for the space. Uh, and just kind of, you know, obviously he's, he's a self-made man that's made himself very successful and, and just kind of having that kind of support was a great opportunity. Uh, I would be lying if I said I didn't foresee franchising coming down the, mm -hmm. the pike. And uh, to my luck, two days after I joined, they announced franchising in the uh, North American LCS. Um, but it was really just the kind of this vision of, of viewing it more as not necessarily a, an opportunity to make money, but more of an opportunity to actually touch a bunch of people that made it really interesting and, and something that I actually resonated with. Did you work on the application process? Were you part of that? I did, yeah. How it was, was that? It was very interesting. So it was, uh, like I said, I was employee number four. So it was myself, our CEO, Ryan Edens, and then Scott Pagro, our, our head of business development. It was really the three of us at the time in, in the front office kind of managing what the application process was. And, and how we looked at it is we each kind of took a vertical that we're very um, specialized in. So Ryan took the team planning section and I took the brand plan and, and, and uh, Scott took the business plan. And we all kind of ran with our particular sections to build like kind of this cohesive application. It was definitely interesting. I've, if anything, I will take that with me as, as kind of a, a life experience that yeah, I can apply it's like, across. It's, it's like, it's like, you know, like, I don't know what your favorite football team is, but it's like being the reason why the Jets got into the NFL. Absolutely. Like I mean, yeah. maybe not the Jets, maybe the Giants. The Giants, like, yeah. Jets, like, I don't want to be associated with the Jets <laughs> right now. But the, like, it, it honestly is that. It was like, if you had the opportunity to be at the forefront of the NFL when the NFL was being founded in the 1960s, would you? 
And that was kind of the mentality that we took with this. We kind of laid the foundation for what FlyQuest wanted to be uh, and went through this entire process. I remember I was on vacation in Florida with my family, my girlfriend, when we got the call that we got accepted and it was outside of being at Disney, it was like the happiest day of my life. Like I was already at Disney world. I didn't have to say I'm going to Disney now guys. So it was, it was an unbelievable experience going through that just from a learning, just from a a building a brand perspective for me, which I'm very passionate about. Uh, It was just, it was incredible. Um, Even more so now that we got accepted. So, um, I mean, yeah, we've, we've already gone, you know, a little bit into FlyQuest, but over the past couple, you know, two months, I would say, You've brought in some some big sponsors. Please fill fill you know add if I if I'm missing it. I think you brought in Five Hour Energy. Yep. You brought in Snickers. Yep. You brought in anyone else or those two is their main focus. Those right? are our main focus right yeah. now. Um, I think we took the approach of like you know both Scott and I have traditional uh, agency experience, so our mentality is around the the non endemics, what we call in esports. So we wanted to to focus on the non endemics to make sure that they felt comfortable in the space, um, and and then expand outwards from there. So talk about that process of bringing in these non endemics, and how do you kind of uh, give them the deliverables or what they are looking for. Um, in, a, in a space that's completely foreign to them. Absolutely. So our mentality at FlyQuest was never to be a la carte. We don't, we don't want to look at a brand like Five Hour or Snickers and come to them and say, like, here's your list of assets. Check off which ones you want. We want to build custom programs for any of our partners, not just the non-endemics, for the endemics as well, where they feel like they're actually getting value out of a partnership from us. Uh, obviously, there's some education that needs to be done Uh, On the esports side of things, especially when working with non-endemics. However, once we kind of dove headfirst into what we could potentially offer them uh, with the audience that we had, uh, we built robust programs that give them ownership over certain items. Um, So for us, a lot of our focus is around our content. Uh, We have an unbelievable content team at FlyQuest that's been doing a fantastic Mm -hmm. job for us. Um, But it was about creating... Uh, ownable, impactful content that our fans would resonate with. Isn't one of your players like an incredible drawer? Like he's an incredible artist? <laughs> yeah, yeah stunned. Yeah. yeah. I saw that stuff like a lot like come by and I love that type of content. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we kind of, so we, that's kind of the custom stuff we talked about. So when we were talking to Five Hour Energy, who owns our Moment of the Match piece, we wanted them to really, you know, originally in the conversation was, hey, you'll own a 30 second piece of content every week that's like, hey, it's the moment of the match and we'll use a highlight from the weekend. And that felt fine, but it didn't really feel that engaging. So what we did was we took this concept uh, that we kind of all refined together as a team uh, of what if we had our players actually like recreate it by drawing it. Like the drawings can be really terrible, but at the same time, it's actually entertaining content. And then we'll overlay the actual footage within that. Uh, and I think it's been extremely successful for us, for, for a team that doesn't have as many followers as your TSMs and your C9s of the world. I mean, we're seeing like 50 to 70% viewership based off of our following on these, which is fantastic for us. Yeah, that's, I mean, that shows, right? So, so um, you mentioned the franchising process. So what I really would like to get some more info on is how is it to be part of you know, one of the two first, you know, one of the two like biggest franchise leagues in, in esports history. Yeah, it's it's awesome in a sense that there's definitely security there. Um, 
I think one of the <laughs> the processes that was very scary uh, that exists in the esports prior to franchising was this relegation structure that you can kind of see across a lot of things. I mean, Rocket League has it. Uh, LCS had it for the longest time. It, it was very scary to take risks. And we now have the ability to take risks in a sense that we have the security of not being able to being kicked out of the league should should we take a risk and it fail. Uh, it, it's just a learning experience for us. Uh, we can push ourselves to invest more in our players and in our infrastructure to pr- kind of create uh, this l- long-term kind of vision where you didn't really have that before because you didn't know if you were going to be in the league the next year. You had confidence that you were going to be in the league next year, like you had confidence in your players and your you team, but it's sports. You never know. Um, the Giants were supposed to be the best team, yeah. like one of the best teams in football this year, and they were god awful. Um, but they don't have to worry about being kicked out, so they can now rebuild and restructure, and then create a team that's going to be successful next year. And now we have the luxury of doing that. It's more of, of being able to execute on a longer term vision than having to worry about just the short term. So talking about that long term vision, I mean, can you expand on that? So we met, we talked about PUBG. Yep. Obviously, your NALCS team is your flagship team. You you have a Rocket League team, right? Mm-hmm. So what is it? What what do you what does FlyQuest see as their kind of long term vision? As much as you can share with us. Yeah, uh, I think for us, it's about identifying opportunities that we feel are beneficial to the space, like the esports space as a whole. And also beneficial to our fans, right? We're a very fan-first organization. We want to make sure that they have a voice within whatever we look to do in the future because we can't fall back on that regional tie that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. where, you know, hey, you're the New York Giants. It doesn't matter who you sign. You're still the New York Giants. You're going to have a built-in fan base. For us, we want to make sure that our fans are, are feel like they're fully embraced within, within our team structure. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're benefiting them in whatever move we do, um, whether that's expanding into a new esports title or one of the existing ones. I can't exactly say right now, um, frankly, because I, I don't know really what, what our, our plans are, just simply because it's very new for us. And we want to make sure that we get things right before we rush into anything else. Um, but I think our kind of vision is is to provide for the fans in the best way possible. Um, we see esports as a growing uh, space that is an entertainment platform first to you know millions of people. Right? We talk about 180 million esports fans across the world. You know, this is obviously entertaining to a vast majority of people. We want to make sure that we're consistently entertaining them instead of spreading ourselves too thin and, and setting up setting ourselves up for failure. So, too, uh, that was incredible. And just to um, just to wrap everything up. Um, obviously, where can people follow FlyQuest and where can people follow you? Absolutely. So uh, you can follow FlyQuest. We're on Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, all at FlyQuest Sports. Um, I go by RDZ outside of the professional space. Um, so you can follow me on, on Twitter at RDZ14, um, Steam, whatever. If you want to play a couple <laughs> games of PUBG and Watch me, for, for watch me, uh, watch me fail miserably. Like by all means, come join me. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you very much. This has been another episode of Esports Boom, and uh, this episode has been incredible. And we're looking forward to our next one.